Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome very much to this session um, called How to Lead. And I am Judith Whelan. I'm the Saturday editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. So I'm the one responsible for the last broadsheet remaining in that stable. Um, and we're here today with Maria Atkinson and Julie White. And what I'm just going to ask is, first of all, for these two leaders in their field, and we'll discover much more about them. Um, I've been meeting them before this session, and I have to say I've been quite inspired by both of them. Um, so I think we're in for a treat this afternoon. So, Maria, I wondered if you could tell us first how, what in your career has brought you, I suppose, to this stage this afternoon. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, two things. Um, I led a movement, which is a um, kind of role where you have to be out in front and call for others to follow you. So that was the green building and sustainability movement. So I had to kind of go out there with that. And then the other is that I um, am a sustainability expert. So that is trying to get organisational change and, and really the leadership that comes with not injecting yourself as this kind of out the front, but getting others to do something differently. Okay, thanks. And Julie? Oh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, well, I've had a, probably a very interesting and different journey from, from most. I actually started my career, if I would call it that, as a barmaid here. So oh. um, I've come a long way. But um, that was during my university days. So I have very, very fond memories um, of this particular building from a long time, a very, very long time ago. Um, but for me, I suppose it was about really not deciding, really not knowing particularly where I wanted to go in my career. I did social work at university. Um, but as it's happened, when you look back sometimes on your career path, you can see the, where the twists and turns have actually made a lot of sense. So for me, I guess the most important thing has been to take opportunities, to actually not plan too far in advance, to actually be open to a whole range of opportunities. And it's amazing how things fall into place. So going from social work to education, working um, as a mother with, with young babies at home but not really wanting to be a, a North Shore mum and play tennis every day, going back to work a couple of days a, work, a week in a school, um, building a philanthropic environment in that particular school, then led me um, to, I guess, the biggest opportunity of it all, of all and that was at Macquarie as as what turned out to be, but didn't start out, as global head of their philanthropic foundation. But that, for me, was when I, I went to Macquarie in my middle 40s. So, for me, that, in some ways, would have... If you'd said that to me at 24 when I was here on, on the bar, you'd go, well, that's 20 years' time. I'll be too old, you know. Here I am still going. And now at Chief Executive Women, which is about women leaders enabling other women leaders and it's fantastic to see so many women in here today learning not how to be a leader but how to be yourselves. Mm. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, well maybe from that, I mean if we're going to be here talking about leadership, um, do you have a personal definition of leadership? Is there such a thing as leadership? I think there is something called leadership, but I'm not sure that there's a proper definition. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we are all different. And one of the most important things about being a leader is that you're yourself. And that not, is not necessarily always going to be 
a positive, it can sometimes be a negative. So I guess the other thing about learning to be a leader and learning how to lead is also learning how to make mistakes, how to acknowledge those mistakes and to learn from them. So I think for me, leadership was actually about observing others for a very long time. And I think what begins to happen is that you actually are a leader and you don't know it. And that when you start to actually stop and say, well, I am a leader, I'm going to lead this, then that's not when you're a leader. People don't follow, I think, in that way. People follow because they can see that the journey is a joint journey and it's a collaborative journey. And that's why women make such good leaders, because, in fact, women are very collaborative. So I think, for me, leadership is just listening, watching and trying to do the best that I can, but also understanding that every time you do something, you actually learn something from that too, and you hope that you take others with you on that journey. Has that been your experience, Maria? Wow. Um, no, not always. Um, so, you know, a, di a difference of opinion, I think, is that... I agree that we have to be ourselves and if you're the one, the one thing to come out of today is that we all lead. Every day there's an opportunity to step up and lead and being authentic and true to yourself is that you will lead in something that makes sense to you. So totally get that. But there are some calls to arms that put sometimes in your life you in a position where you have to lead. And then you start to think that it is some magic thing that I might not have the skills for or the capability for. And so I think that having a conversation that talks about the diversity of styles of leadership means that we don't think that it's just one way or no, I don't have those or do have those skills. Does it... So, you know, thinking about both your experiences, I suppose, does it take a certain courage to take on the role of leader? Um, you know, I, I suppose that might depend on whether you feel as though you've actively chosen to yeah. become a leader or had leadership thrust upon you. But um, it seems to me from observing that leaders are often quite courageous. But I suppose thinking about that first moment when you think, oh, this step I'm going to take, what's it going to involve? Mm. Um, how was that for you, Maria? I mean, thinking back to the first time, I suppose, that you were asked to be a leader or realise that you'd become one. I think it comes down to absolute courage and, and I care, I really care about clean water, fresh air, I, I really care about the environment and I really, really think if you care deeply about something then you're courageous because I think to care you have to have courage and to give a voice to something that doesn't have a voice like the environment um, means that you, you have to put yourself in that position. Um, so I do think that there's that thing if, if I put my head up or I speak out or I champion something, I'm not sure when we should get to that conversation is, you know, does Australia have a culture that shoots that down? And so there's the fear of taking that leadership position. But I think if you really do care about something, and that might be organising the kids' sport program, that might be getting money into a school or donating money to something else, it can be anything. If you really care about it, then 
you have to take a leadership position to champion that cause. And I, I think today the leadership isn't always the heroic uh, standing on the hill with a flag and saying, follow me, it's this way. That kind of heroic leadership exists. But I also think every day there's opportunities and my message is step up, just take it. Julie? Yeah, I agree with um, Maria too. I think the voice is very important. And I think for too long women have actually been hesitant about using their voice. Um, <clears throat> there's a very good example of being in a meeting and not everyone is necessarily in meetings, so it could be in the mother's club or it could be in a corporate boardroom, it could be at your, your local um, tuck shop. But often you'll sit there as a woman and have an idea about something and you'll think, oh, no, I won't say that. No, no, one, no one will want to hear about that. That's a silly idea. Five minutes later, Bill or Bob says, oh, what about so-and-so? And you go... And everyone goes, what a fantastic idea, Bill. You know. So I think voice is really important. And I think the other thing that's really important too is that heroic leadership is important, and le but leaders come in all sizes, shapes and colours. And leadership can be a very simple thing. It can actually be how you bring up your children. That, that is a leadership role. It can be how you interact with a colleague at work and you are actually might be a quite a junior person in the organisation. You are still a leader within that organisation. And I think sometimes people think, oh, I, I, I could never be a leader because it's the Prime Minister or it's the, it's the head of Australia Post or it's the head of Macquarie Bank. They're leaders. But I think what we need to understand is that a community is full of leaders and everyone has to, to have a voice and take a leadership role in some shape or form. But also you have to have a bit of self-belief and a bit of confidence. And that comes about by actually listening to your own voice and then verbalising that. Do you have to have support as well? Do you think, um, you know, do you have to have support from those around you encouraging you to do that in the workplace and also within your own circle? Yes, I think so, absolutely. And, th and that support can come in all sorts of again, different guises. So it may be as simple as someone when you were at school perhaps who gave you an opportunity to take a leadership role at school or, or encouraged you to think a little bit outside the box. It may be a colleague at work. It might be your best friend. It might be your partner. It might even be in some cases, and, and I've certainly encountered this, it might actually be your own children giving you some support and encouragement to do something beyond what you thought you could do. Right. Now, Maria, you have been a leader in a very male-dominated industry. Um, is that harder? Was that harder for you as a woman, as one of the few women who is actually a leader in the workplace and, you know, an international leader in that field, to do that if there are no other women around you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to say it wasn't. Yes, yes. Um, and a lot of it was because men and women are different and I really, we just got to accept, just different. But if you're one woman with ten blokes in the room, um, then that conversation is going to be traditionally male. So to participate in that, you know, I had a coach that 
I love the book that Cheryl Sandberg's talking about with Lean In, but I actually had a coach that physically taught me there are three things, you know, I speak like a man when there's a boardroom table, I actually physically put my hand on the table, lean in before I speak. There's a physical movement that the ten blokes noticed. Oh, hold on a minute, Marie's going to say something. Mm. So it was that. But I also worked on construction sites. Um, and I have to say that that was easier and less brutal than the executive corporate environment. Really? Why was that? Um, like, maybe talk... What was it like to go into those boardrooms and be the only woman there? I think my disappointment is that I didn't get the opportunity with other women to build on ideas. So I used my female skill of being highly manipulative. <laughs> and I worked the men before the meeting and I got Bill or Bob to propose the idea. So, yeah, horror of that, but that's what you do. Um, whereas on a construction site, uh, there were incredible... Um, acceptances of differences and so I felt that I was truer to myself and had a voice in a in that kind of macho construction environment than I did in the corporate one there you go well I mean you've both said that you think there are distinct differences in male female style I suppose a stereotype of leaders might be that sort of heroic, very confident man who just is able to say, right, we're doing this. Um, that doesn't seem to be the natural style of women leaders. Um, I mean, what do you think are the differences between men and women that play out in their leadership styles? Julie, you'd already talked about women being very collaborative. Yeah, I'm going to cheat. <laughs> Here, I've got my notes too. <laughs> now, there's a reason for me going to cheat. We, um, Chief Executive Women, conducts research every year with Bain and in 2011 there was actually some research done around the different styles of, <coughs> of what stops women from reaching the top and why is style one of those things. And there were um, a number of interesting things that came out of that because when we look at what in this particular study were the attributes of style, problem solving, influencing team building, networking, inspiring, delegating, consulting, rewarding, supporting and mentoring. Men's rating of men, so men rating themselves, rated themselves absolutely highest on problem solving, influencing, networking and delegating. They rated women highest on consulting, rewarding, supporting and mentoring. So suddenly already you've got completely different perceptions from the men. How did women rate themselves? I'm afraid to say that women rated themselves in nearly the same way. They actually rated themselves a little bit higher on problem solving and team building but again consulting rewarding, supporting and mentoring were where women saw themselves too. So already there's a... Why are we pigeoning ourselves, pigeonholing ourselves? It is very difficult to understand how you get around that. But one of the most important things that did come out of it was that in fact 
those two, if you liked, balanced each other out. So when you've got both men and women in a leadership team, you've got the best of both. And that's another reason why that whole gender balance is so important because you don't want a room full of men just influencing and being assertive. You actually want a little bit of supporting and mentoring and collegiality as, as well. Mm. Maria? Um, well, I met Dr Judith Rosner in Los Angeles and she's 83 and she's working on her next book called um, Organisational Corporate Intercourse. And so, okay. <laughs> so she's been working essentially um, with brain research and I'll just read the things that she says, the difference between men and women that are documented based on this research. Women are holistic thinkers, men are lineal thinkers. Women communicate on more than one level at a time. Men communicate on one level at a time. Women view power as a means to an end. Men view power as an end in itself. Women are interactive leaders. Men are command and control leaders. Women are concerned as much about the process as they are about the outcome. Men are concerned primarily about the outcomes. Women see relationships as an end in themselves. Men see relationships as a mean to an end. Women are sensitive to subliminal, subliminal cues. Men aren't. <laughs> Something we all know. Women are multitaskers, but this is not, you know, who's better or worse. But men tend to do tasks sequentially. Um, women are multi-thinkers and men tend to think sequentially. Women are comfortable with ambiguity and men are uncomfortable with ambiguity. So if they're the way we've got differences, then we do need to have this corporate intercourse and we do need to celebrate the strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's interesting just listening to that. I'm listening to it and thinking... Why are men all the leaders? I mean, women are clearly much better at this <laughs> yeah. than men. Um, you know, we can do ten things at once. We can actually be empathetic. We can, um, you know, bring many more things to the table. And most interestingly, um, the thing that really stood out there for me was this idea that women see power as a means to an end, whereas men see power as... The ultimate, and you sort of think, well, once you've got the power, where's the satisfaction in that? Um, but you know, that does bring us to the question of why we still really do at the top layers of corporate leadership, of political leadership, women are outnumbered by numbers that we don't even want to contemplate. Why is that? If we knew the answer to that, Jules, we would be miles ahead. Look, it's a very interesting question and I honestly can't answer that question. Um, it's a mix, it's a mix of a whole lot of things. I think, I think what's most distressing though is that we've been asking the question for a very, very long time mm. and it just doesn't seem to be shifting. Um, when we talk to women through CEW and when we talk to women as part of the work that we do, it seems to me that women get to about 29 or 30 and suddenly they just opt out. They just see it as too hard. So I guess the questions now have to be around, well, how do we make the workplace more responsive, more flexible? How do we take account of the differences of style of women and men? And I think it's still going to be a very long time. I had a very senior male leader say to me the other day, what's wrong with you girls? Why aren't you just 
kicking down the rampants, you know. If it was, if it was men that were owning 3% of CEOs in Australia, you know, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't put up with that for six minutes. I didn't have an answer for it, actually. I, it, it is something that, that is very perplexing. And I guess, in many ways, the only answer is just do it, just appoint women, because, again, what we're seeing through research is that women want to work in organisations where there are other women. They like to aspire in organisations where they can see women already in senior leadership roles. If they don't see women in those roles, they actually don't want to work in that organisation. So it's, it's self-fulfilling. <laughs> You're pushing younger women away if you don't have senior women. Um, so it, it, it is very perplexing. Mm. Maria, do you think that we need a quota system? <laughs> we didn't even rehearse that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> no, but also, what's the number? What's the number? And it's not three token women, and it's not three token men. It's fifty percent. That's what will happen with quota. And I think exactly we'll get thirty percent, and we'll get token. So fifty percent. And I had that conversation with Eva Cox, and I'm sorry for swearing, but Eva, it um, it was the all women hate each other festival of dangerous ideas conversation, and she said, look, we won't know that we've got success until we've got as many female fuckwits as we do men. So in the quota system, we're going to have women who aren't up to the task, who are pretty average in performing, etc. but we've got plenty of blokes with that as well. So the 50-50 isn't the answer. It's an injection to have a conversation and to have a conversation about diversity and have the p opinions. And I think for particularly for business, and this is where we're putting in our pension wealth, these are companies that are listed, that I think that they're needing that diversity to actually be better as businesses. So I'm all for the 50-50, and then I think what you get when you've got that conversation is cultural change, and the corporate environment has to change because I'm not going back into it the way it is at the moment. Okay, well, let's, let's use that as a jumping-off point and say, let's, just, let's be all Pollyanna-ish about this, I suppose, and say that change is possible. Um, what are the qualities that we are going to need to become leaders of, you know, in the workplace, in our families, in our communities, in our, in our lives? You know, the, we talked about opportunities for leadership not just in the corporate sphere, but also in anything we do. What do you think are, again, I suppose we, we touched on this at the beginning, but what are the essential qualities of that you can look into yourself and think, I've got those, maybe I could take on a leadership role. Looking at me. Maria. Maria. I actually wrote about this, so I called up this speech. Um, so Self-awareness, yeah, um, understanding your strengths and, and weaknesses, but attending sessions like today, because you get a world view, like the world becomes bigger with the conversations you experience or participate in today. Um, I think confidently innovating and adapting to the changes. I think that's a, an ingredient of being a leader. I think engaging with others with a positive attitude that is about the people. So the leadership is unlocking their potential as much as, as your potential. So it's that um, empathy and understanding. And I think also energising yourself and others. And I think you, you should have ambition 
and passion. Mm. Mm. Julie? She answered it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I agree with all that Maria said. I, I think one of the things is that, that self-belief, and, and, and it's, it's not self-confidence, it's, it's actually a self-belief, and, and, and it's a subtle difference, but it makes a hell of a difference, I think, because we are all going to have moments of self-doubt. We're all going to have moments, and I can vividly recall often saying, I'm a fraud. What am I doing this for? I'm a fraud. You know, they're going to find out that I can't really do this. So, so I think that's really important to have that self-belief, but also understand that you don't rest on your laurels, that you're forever learning. Always employ people smarter than yourself. Mm. I think that's really important. Mm. But also having, I guess, again, self-belief, but also knowing when to say enough is enough, this isn't for me. And that's another important life journey, I think, that you might have decided to go on a particular path because you saw yourself as a leader in X. But maybe X isn't really what was meant, was, is what it was meant to be. So also, I think, taking risks is really important as a leader. Personal risk, risk in terms of that next big jump. Um, someone at Macquarie used to talk about his BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals. So you want to take people with you on a journey. You want to take a big step. And, and I think they're important too. So you don't just rest on your laurels. You're always looking for that next opportunity. Just thinking about when each of you have done that, you know, taking a risk, going for it, were there any occasions where you kind of came a cropper, where that didn't work? And if so, how did you sort of pick yourself up again and get back to maybe thinking, I'll take the next big risk? Or, you know, are there, are there any occasions you can think of where... Because to me, I mean, that you know, the... Women are, a lot of women, I think, are naturally risk-averse. Um, you know, it's part of that consultative thing of wanting to smooth things over, of wanting the cooperation in the workplace, in your family, to sort of take a step and, and you know, soar. Well, you might actually not reach that goal that you're going for. How do you cope with that? And, and if there are any experiences that you could talk about, you know, that would be that would show that example. If not, that's fine, but... I mean, you might I've have taken every risk and it's worked. No, no. Plenty, yeah, plenty of things that haven't worked out. So we had a, a session earlier about how to fail, so <laughs> plenty of stories about... Right. But we then defined that failure wasn't failure in a negative sense. Mm. So that didn't work and then rethink, but really importantly to have a network of people that are, whether it's friends, family, or sponsors, or mentors, or coaches, like pay somebody to help you with that, figuring it out, that didn't work. We all know when something didn't work, the way it didn't go the way we thought it would. Um, and it's that conviction to just back up, reflect, and go again in maybe either a completely different way, or it just changed the tact. But I had lots of people when I made Perhaps um, I ended up chairing a United Nations group and I found that one of my most biggest successes because it was herding cats of mm. multitude of languages and cultures. And I thought, this I've, I've learnt so much because I used to be 
believe it or not, so opinionated and I would interject my opinion earlier. And I learnt through failures of not getting the outcome that I wanted about how to change the style and behaviour to get that collaborative outcome. So it's really, um, I think, about knowing that you, you will have failures, but just getting it. What is, wasn't there a brave conversation about getting your team of supporters around you? Mm. Yeah, yeah I, I, think, I think support is really important. I think probably the biggest... And it's a really... I shouldn't say this to this audience of young women. But I actually opted when I had my first... When I got married, I got married middle 30s and I thought I was never going to get married, so I got married. Fell pregnant immediately and decided, right, that's it, I'm going to be a mum. Get rid of work, not do any work, stay at home. I think I probably lasted about two months and by which stage I was jumping out, ready to jump out the window. But for me, I'd walked away from a career. I'd gone to... I'd literally... We'd moved from Balmain to Warunga, so we'd gone from the city to the suburbs... Um, I had a new baby, I had no network, I knew nobody in the, in, in the suburbs. I'd, lost my, I'd left my job and I remember someone who is now very, very senior had said to me, just take maternity leave. Oh, no, 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 I don't want to take maternity leave. No, no. So I guess for me that was the biggest mistake of my life, not having the child. The child is gorgeous. But, <laughs> but actually thinking that I, had, that I wanted to give up a whole life. So that for me was something that I needed to learn a lot from. And, but it, as it's turned out, that provided the opportunity for a whole new career path, which I would never have thought of. So I guess it was biting the bullet and saying, well, this is, I've completely mucked this up. I'm not going to be a tennis player. Um, I need to find a job. <coughs> and I found a part-time role down the road, so I wasn't far away from home, but but then began to get my confidence back. And it was amazing how quickly you lost confidence because you knew you'd made a big mistake, a really big mistake. Um, so, yeah, I think that was really important and it was good to have a husband and a family to support me who said, oh, he didn't want me at home because I was so unbearable. But, you know, go back, yes, you can go back to work. Where... Interestingly, his brother, who's 12 years older, had a wife who was at home all her life and read their children. And when she said she wanted to go back to work, the hus her husband was beside himself. And, and, and again, that whole support was, wasn't there for her in that, in that instance. But yeah, so we do sometimes make decisions that we regret. But it's how you get out of that and how you rescue you yourself and, and the situation in a way that suits is very important. Do you think study is important for leadership? I mean, thinking just now about the corporate world, <coughs> many of our corporate leaders, you know, have MBAs, are showing all the time that they're reading the right books, that they're going to the right courses. How important do you think that sort of thing is for good leadership? Look, I think it gives you... <laughs> I haven't done study for a very long time, but I think in many respects it's, it's about the learning and it might not actually be the study. I, I, it's actually about the inter, inter, interaction and interchange so with other people, the experience. The yeah. and, I, and I think um, as well for, for generations coming through now, the world is a very big open place that we probably didn't have the same access to when I was younger in my career. 
But I think it is important to, to always be open to learning new things. Now, whether that's necessarily going on a course or whether it's having a mentor or a responsible or a coach. Um, Maria talks about coaches. I mean, coaching is a very important part, I think, of any leader's portfolio or box of, of, of how-to tricks, really. Um, and it doesn't have to be even a formal arrangement. I've had what I would call coaches over the years who've just been people who've been prepared to sit and say to me, this is what you should have done and this is how you can do it. Um, courses can be good, but sometimes you can get people who are serial course goers and who are serial book readers, and I would be wary of those. Um, yeah, it, it, there's opportunity. I think there is definitely opportunities to be had. I think, though, what does tend to happen is you get further into your career, you perhaps don't do that as much. And interesting, at, at CEW, we have a very extensive scholarship program for particularly emerging female leaders to go on three or four day courses to INSEAD or Harvard or to Melbourne Business School or wherever. And we've now decided to, um, we're certainly looking at maybe actually providing some scholarships for women who are just below C-suite, who are just about to become CEOs. Because when you actually talk to that um, cohort of women, it's a very long time since they've done any professional development mm -hmm. because they've been too busy. Too busy trying to be super mum, super worker, super wife, super friend. Um, so I think there is absolutely a place for it. Okay, Maria, do you...? Yeah, I don't think it's... It's that commitment to lifelong learning versus mm. that I have to do a course. Yeah. But there is that if you have some kind of um, interaction where you're sharing experiences, but also having somebody hold the mirror up to you. Like my coach, Mel Singer, I don't know whether she's in the room or at the other forum, but she made me think about language I was using like I'm sick to my stomach. And that was like, okay, well you're holding stress there. Why is that? So she was playing back to me so I could self-reflect and then I was ready to make the next move. So I think it's a combination of reading, getting as much information, but also... Um, Understanding, and I think that CEW's commitment to that, you know, that level of women below the CEO, which are mostly those that choose, there's no chance for me, so I'm opting out, is a fantastic initiative. Now, we've got time for one or two questions from the floor, if anybody's keen. And the first hand that went up there was right up the back. If you can, yes, you, if you can just stand up and shout it out, that would be great. Stanford study. I think I'd like to be a bit more positive than that. I think that the more women we can see working, the better. The study that, that you refer to um, is used 
a lot at Stanford as a case study in, in, in the MBA course, and Cheryl Sandberg um, alludes to it too in her book, Lean In. So there is this perception that we have to break down, and I think the only way that we can do that is by encouraging women to be themselves, so not necessarily um, to emulate the negative traits, but to actually be positive about what it is that you want to do. I think, though, that there are some terrific women leaders, and, you, and we don't have to look very far in Sydney to find them. We just don't... There just aren't enough of them. So I think it's a matter of really just persevering, being positive yourself, being sure of yourself, and being determined to, to, to continue on that pathway. What I think is happening more and more is that women's... You're, the readings are, are, are sort of, in a way, deterring us a little bit, and I think women actually need to be more determined, if anything. And we talked earlier about finding your voice. Find your voice about your own professional career. Find your voice about wanting that promotion. Finding your voice about asking for that pay rise. Most men would look at a role that was a promotion and, and say there were ten attributes that you had to, had to um, have for that step-up role. A guy will look at that and go, oh, yeah, I can do that one, maybe that one, and I'll wing the rest. So he's ticked maybe two, maybe three out of the ten. A woman might well look at that ten attributes and go, oh, I've only got nine. How can I possibly apply for that role? <laughs> so find that voice and find that courage. Great. Ah, uh, yes, just there. Um, in the Yes, you. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sounded terrible. Yes, please, your question. <laughs> Here, here, yeah, yeah. You're, who, who, anyone who has a son? Um, was, yeah. There was a comment made about talking about quotas, but shouldn't we be trying to to encourage and, and tell educate men about the, what they need in the workplace in terms of women? Is that fair enough? Is that what you said? Yes. How they, we should be encouraging them. Okay. Is it just? Well, is it a dialogue? I mean, you. I think it's education. I think it's. Sons. I think it's about. It's about educating. I must say that when we developed um, the diversity um, program at Macquarie about five or six years ago, um, I was very dismayed to see. To start with, it's not like this now. But at the beginning, the diversity program was aimed at all of the women. Now, it was a little bit like when um, you go to a baby health clinic. The, the only people that go to a baby health clinic are the ones who, who care for their kids. So, so instead of preaching to the converted, we need to be preaching to those that aren't converted. So for me, a diversity program in the workplace should actually be aimed at the boys. Yeah. 
not at the girls, but at the boys, getting them to understand the importance of having female talent on their team, of, of having women working beside them, and how, and how much impact that will have on their work. Interestingly, um, in the federal government, we were talking the other day to someone, and they sometimes, instead of having um, where they allocate people to particular roles and promotions, there might be special projects that come in. And a minister perhaps has had a brilliant idea and needs a, a task force to pull together quickly on a particular aspect of policy. Those task forces you can volu you, um, uh, volunteer for and the women are quick to volunteer for the task forces. And they've found that those task forces are the most effective working units in the public service. And it's from those task forces that they're more and more choosing the people that they want to go on to promotion. So putting yourself forward, not waiting to be asked, I guess is what I'm saying. Have that confidence and have that voice. One last question. Yes. Maybe. It's a great place to end. For those that didn't hear it, it it's, it's that, you know, the model of, um, of male-dominated leadership is that it's, it's outdated. It's not working. We saw it in Davos where, you know, 2,000 of the world leaders go. There are 7,000 people that are security for those 2,000 people, so they're important. And yet we see 12% women in that. So the conversation at Davos has shifted even to the point of... Um, not just promoting women, but also going through um, reflective um, meditation and understanding for men leaders so there is the awareness so that they can be bringing women into the conversation, into the decision-making. So it's not a man... I don't want to leave it as a man versus woman thing. I just think society is, is evenly split. In organisations, you've got to have a reflection of community and society in those organisations. And I, I think you just keep hiring like with like, and so you end up with that male, male, male. And so we've got to kind of crash through. Okay, and on that, on that note about let's all keep going and crash through, <laughs> thank you very much, Maria and Julie. Thank you.